I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 58. And as you may have guessed, we're taking a break, another break from Romans. <laughs> Hence Isaiah. Um, so Isaiah chapter 58, we're going to look, we're going to really look at the first 12, well, excuse me, 14, 12 verses, sorry. I think I may have 14 on the screen, but we're really going to look at the first 12 verses. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light bright forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard." Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then you shall, light, shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you should be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose wet waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is God's Word. Please have a seat. I stopped there, really, because 13 and 14, they transition from fasting to the Sabbath, and they're kind of a parallel ideas, so we're just going to focus on the one. And the reason that we're doing this, we're taking a break from Romans, is because we're about to start those 30 days of, of fasting and prayer to go alongside many of the other churches in Katy and West Houston uh, who are committing ourselves to praying 30 days for our neighbors. And the idea is that you'll pray for the neighbors on your right and on your left and across the street and behind you on in each of the corners around you. I think, I think there's a a place for you to find the seven nearest neighbors. And by the way, if you haven't picked up your booklet, there's a, there's a booklet available um, that has the instructions on how to go through this. There's a, a short devotional for every one of those 30 days that you can follow. 
There's a card that has a place for you to write down the names of those people that you're praying specifically for. And if you don't know the names of all those people, uh, there's instructions on that card how you can go to a website. I think it's called blesseveryhome.com. You can plug in your address, and it'll give you the names if you don't know them, so you can write it down. So those 30 days, you can be praying specifically for people that you know or might very well run into if you haven't met yet. Uh, Whereas unlike last year when we did this, it was kind of a random set of people. Uh, Now we've tried to narrow it down to pray more specifically for people we know. So I hope that encourages you, and I hope that you will participate. I know many of you picked up the booklets last Sunday, uh, but if you're not, if you didn't, I have plenty more. I have more than enough uh, for each person to take one. And that includes youth. If you're interested in doing this and praying for them, I would encourage you as well. You, you might also have one. So because we're doing that, we're going to spend a few weeks talking about how do we become effective prayers? How do we, be, how do we see our prayers be heard and answered? And uh, as the instructions say, we'll be fasting and praying. Somehow, we have this idea in our heads that fasting and praying results in something good. And I hope that's a good assumption to make, but I don't know if we always understand exactly why that is. I know we hear about fasting, but I think while we may understand prayer a little bit better, fasting is something that I think we all a little bit wrestle with how to do it or why we do it. We know what fasting is. I mean, fasting is not a a foreign idea. In fact, it's become quite popular in today, the whole idea of intermittent fasting for your health, right? You pause eating for a certain period of time, an intermittent period of time, so that your body can go through all kinds of things and become more healthy. So we've associated, perhaps in our culture, fasting with physical health. But that's, of course, not why the Bible talks about fasting, although it's the same concept of of depriving yourself of food, perhaps even drink in some cases, as we see, for some particular purpose. And while we get the concept, I don't really know if we have a good grasp of why we do it or how it's effective. So that's what we're going to try and take a stab at this morning, specifically the topic of fasting. Now, we could start out by thinking about all the examples that we see of fasting in the Bible, because there's many. Perhaps the most familiar example we have of fasting is when Jesus fasted in the wilderness. Right after he was baptized by John the Baptist, he was driven into the wilderness, we read, and he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. And after those 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came to him and suggests that he turn a stone into a piece of bread. Now, I would imagine that would be a pretty tempting thing. If you hadn't eaten for 40 days, you'd be pretty hungry. And yet Jesus somehow resists, and he knows to resist, Because he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we can at least derive some aspect of there is some significance in relationship between fasting and the importance of the Word of God. So we can get that part. There's another example in uh, the story of the great, the story of redemption in the Old Testament with the rescue uh, of of, uh, the Israelites from slavery. When Moses had brought the people out of Egypt, and he brought them to the mountain where God had told him to bring them at Mount Sinai, and he leaves them at the foot of the mountain, and he goes up on the mountain. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights without food and without water, and after 40 days and 40 nights, God meets him. 
and gives him the Ten Commandments. So again, there is some association at least between the Word of God and its significance in our lives and fasting. There are some of the other examples of fasting in the Bible. We can think of the time when Elijah fled after his great victory on Mount Carmel. If you recall, Elijah was a prophet and he challenged the prophets of Baal who were a foreign god that much of Israel had been following at the time. And he says, I want to challenge you to find out whose God is the real God. We'll go up on the mountain, meet me there. And of course, you're familiar with that story. Elijah challenges them to, you know, ask for your God to bring fire down to your sacrifice, and whichever one answers with fire will know that's God. And, and they call out, nothing happens. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. He calls out, fire falls down from heaven, takes up the sacrifice, takes up the wood and the stone and burns up the water that he poured around in the trenches as well. And everybody cries out, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And he has those prophets of Baal killed right there on the mountain. And unfortunately, Jezebel, who was the queen of the land, she didn't like that too much. She wasn't won over. And she vows to do to him what he did to her prophets. And so he flees running into the wilderness. He wants to die. And God meets him, or an angel meets him, gives him some food, lets him rest, refreshes him, but then says, you need this refreshment because you're going to go on a journey and you're not going to have any food for 40 days and 40 nights. You're going to fast. And after that period of time, God will meet with you and He will give you instructions of what you are to do. He will encourage you. He will reinvigorate you and your ministry. He will direct your life and how you're to go. So somehow there's this connection between fasting and the Word of God, which is somehow for us, and gives us direction for the way we are to live. So we can get those things vaguely from the examples that we see, right? And there's some other examples too, like for example, when people will fast uh, because they're mourning the death of somebody. David did that often. David fasted when Saul and Jonathan had died. Saul was the former king before him, and Jonathan was the king's son who was David's close friend. When they died in battle, he fasted as a sign of mourning. He fasted again when the the commander of the army of Israel, who had once been his enemy as well, had died. He fasts for his loss. And he fasts when his son dies, who was the result of his illicit relationship. Uh, that, was some, that was the penalty, I guess, that God had imposed. And he had fasted and mourned for those things. So, we, so there's this idea of mourning and bowing before the Lord. So we, all we know with the examples is there's some vagueness association with the importance of the Word of God, its direction for our lives, something of sadness. But that doesn't really help us much. But I think really when we hear that we're, we're invited to fast, like for these 30 days, those are the kinds of things we think of. Oh, somehow this is good for us to understand the Word. Somehow this is, means we have to humble ourselves before God. But that's about it. So what is the purpose of fasting in, in that it can be an effective thing for us to do for God to hear our prayers? Well, that's why we want to turn and look at Isaiah 58. Because Isaiah 58 talks about fasting. It's probably the clearest place that we have in all the Scripture that talks about fasting. And he, he lays out for us the problem of fasting, the practice of fasting, or the proper practice of fasting, and then ultimately, the promise of fasting. So that's what we see as we look at this passage. And so, I want, first of all, let's talk about the problem of fasting, because that's how he begins the chapter. He begins, uh, you know, he's begin, this is instructions from God to Isaiah, for this is what you're to do, this is what you're to do to the people. 
He says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So that's, he's saying, this is your problem, and your problem is the way you're fasting. It's a problem. Now, it's really interesting as you go through this, because if we just focus on what they're actually doing in their fasting, we can scratch our heads, because look at what they're doing. He says in verse 2, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. That sounds like a pretty good thing to me. (laughs) They seek me daily and delight to to, to know my ways. And he goes on, they ask of me righteous judgments. Well, isn't that what we do when we pray? They delight to draw near to God. I mean, this all sounds pretty good, pretty good to me. But then verse 3, we learn that their fasting has not yielded what they expected, and they're puzzled. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Now, if we just stop there and think, if we employed this measure in our fasting, I don't, don't you think that we too would be expecting positive things from the Lord? If you would take time, if you would go before the Lord and ask righteous judgments, if you would delight to draw near to God, if you would seek Him daily and delight to know His ways, if you would humble yourself before God, don't you think if we did all those things that we too would be expecting God to answer our prayers? I mean, if, can you imagine if our nation was doing that? If our, I mean, I would long for our church to be described like that. And yet, for some reason, there is a great problem in it. The Lord isn't hearing their prayers. And I don't think the problem is in what they are doing. I think the problem, as he goes on to describe, is what they're not doing. And that's where he goes to lay out. That's specifically what he says of the problem. So if you go and look at the rest of, of verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So what are we to make of this? What's exactly going on? What's being illustrated by this reality? It's, it's almost, you could say, they're, they're approaching God in a particular time because they want Him to do something for them. But the rest of their life doesn't reflect anything of the character of God Himself. So what does that say? There is some disconnect between approaching God and the life that they hope to lead. They're not united. I mean, this is such a common thing throughout even today as we think about our relationship with God. It's something that's totally isolated from the life that we live on Monday through Saturday, for example, if you want to separate the Sunday from the rest of the week. They don't correlate. 
We don't think about the truths that we learn about God and translate it into the way that we live on a day-by-day basis. There's this disconnect, which would reflect, I would suggest, a lack of trust in the whole purpose of what it means to know God. I don't really trust you, God, to lead me in the direction I should go because I don't listen to where you tell me I should go. And if you don't trust God, why would you ever expect Him to answer your prayer? if you don't trust the Lord. So, what does He say instead? Why fast? It isn't just to humble yourself before the Lord, although that's not a bad thing. Look in verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is that what it is? I mean, it is in part, but it's not only that. That's the point. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And the, the sad thing is, I think that that's how we would define a fast. Isn't that what fasting is about? It's so I can humble myself before the Lord? I would say that's a great start. <laughs> but that's all it is, it's a start. I think it misses the whole purpose, the whole point of what the fasting is all about. And that's what he goes on to show us. If that's the problem with the fast, what's the right practice of, the past, of fasting or the purpose of fasting? And he goes on to spell that out. He, he doesn't leave it to be a mystery. He says uh, in verse 6, "'Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring your homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is what he describes as fasting, which is interesting because there's no mention of food (laughs) at all in in this section. So if you're invited to fast and to pray for these next 30 days, and you're thinking in terms of fasting of, of just not eating food, well, you too have kind of missed the point. The point of fasting is beyond the, the, the not eating of food. In fact, I would say the not eating of food is a tool to try to get you to what real fasting is all about. So when you are fasting and denying yourself food, that part of the fast anyway, what happens? You say, well, I feel hungry. And that's part of the point. You need to feel hungry. Why do you need to feel hungry? When Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, what is the correlation he's tying there? There there is a hunger that your body has, that your life has, that your soul has for something to fill it. And you have been filling it daily, every day with something so that you don't feel the necessarily effects of being hungry just in the way that you do with your physical body, with food. So when you deny your body physically your, with, the, at, with food to eat, you begin to feel your, your, your physical hunger. If you deny yourself other things like going your own way, like doing as you please, you're denying yourself the things that would ordinarily make your soul feel okay and comfortable. Do you see? The things that you have used to fill up your life in such a way that it feels satisfied, you're fasting from. That's the idea. 
it's as though it's uncovering the hidden idols that we don't realize that we have. By the way, the psalmist talks about how those who make idols often become like them. Well, the same thing is true, I think, regardless of, whether, of what you worship. You become like the thing that you worship. You become like the thing that you worship. So what is, what is God like? Well, isn't He about loosening the bonds of the oppressed, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting and healing the sick? I mean, what, what on earth did Jesus do when He came and ministered among the people? You know, what's interesting is when Jesus first comes onto the scene publicly and announces His ministries, He comes to the synagogue, He opens up to the passage they gave him, and he reads from Isaiah, not this passage, but very near this passage, uh, chapter 61, which is actually pretty parallel in what it says here. He says, the Spirit of God is upon me to set free those who have been captive, to give sight to the blind. So, it's the same kind of thing that we see going on here. This is what I have been called to do. This is what I am doing for you. And then Jesus, towards the end of His ministry, if you turn to Matthew 25, and He's giving some parables about the kingdom, in this one He's talking about what it's going to be like at the end of time. And He's rewriting, in essence, what we read here in Isaiah 58. And I want to turn to you there, because it's fascinating. Starting in verse 31, He says, "'When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations.'" And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the le- his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do we see the parallel things that, says that you are to do in the proper fast? You are to do these things. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? And what's the result? The result is the one that does that goes into his inheritance, and the one who doesn't do that is punished forever. That seems a little harsh. And if you're following so far, you're probably walking away thinking, 
well, either feeling a little guilty, feeling a little fear of trepidation, then that's probably not a bad thing. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to commit to doing this a lot better so that I can do these things in such a way and I will hear God tell me I can go now and receive my inheritance. And that would be problematic because you have failed in all of those areas. Because the reality is, and I think this is part of the point of fasting, you are the sick, you are the hungry, and you are the naked. And the fasting is the idea that you begin to feel that. You'll remember that, that you were clothed in the righteous robe of Christ, that you were healed, not just from your sickness, but from your deadness. You were fed when you were hungry. And somehow that has a way of changing a person. And that's important, and I want you to remember that just for a minute. Because I want to examine that parable also. Just I want to revisit that for, because it's not that you need to go and become sheep or become like this. The beginning of that parable is pretty important because it says initially he's, he's well, let's go back and look at it. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. As a sheep separates sheep from the goats. And this is the vital question. What makes a sheep a sheep? And what makes a goat a goat? It isn't the way a sheep behaves that makes it a sheep, by the way. The behavior is how you know it's a sheep. That's the difference. A sheep doesn't make itself do a certain things. It just does things because it's a sheep. I was looking up to say, what is the actual difference between sheep and goats? And they do have different temperaments, by the way. They do look different, similar. They're similar, what is it, similar species, but different genus, I think that's what it is. You know, sheep have wool and goats have hair. You have, uh, what's another difference? You know, one's tail down and the other tail is up. They overlap in a lot of ways in terms of their diet. Some of their behavior is similar, but a lot of it's different. And the shepherd is one who knows the behavior close enough to know the difference between a sheep and a goat by the way he behaves. And that's the point. The evidence is brought up, and this is how you live, not to say this is what got you, the reward, but this is how I recognized who belongs to me and who doesn't. That's the difference. And how do you get to belong to the Lord? You get to belong to the Lord by being fed when you are hungry, by being clothed when you are naked, being healed when you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That is how you become a sheep. That is how you belong to the Lord. And as a result, that is going to change you. Because if you think about it, if you understand how desperate you are when someone comes and brings an answer to you, it moves you. It makes you grateful. It changes the way you go forward and your interaction, your relationship with that person forever. And that's the point. The people of Israel had forgotten what God had done for them. 
He had come to them when they were in slavery. They couldn't get themselves out of slavery. He had come to them and set them free and given them inheritance. They could never have inherited that land if it weren't for the Lord. But somehow they had forgotten that. So let's go back to why we fast again. What is fasting an effective tool to remember? It's an effective tool to remember that I am the one that's hungry. I am the one that's naked. I am the one that's sick, whom the Lord has touched and healed and fed and clothed. So that now my life can reflect this God who has so touched me. So that's the difference. The fasting is effective because it helps us to draw near to become like the God who has revealed Himself to us. I love the the question that Jesus asks to the one who asks Him about which man loved Him more, the one who had sinned more, the one who had sinned less. He says, oh, I guess the one who had been forgiven more. He says, you've judged rightly. And what's interesting is the person he's talking to is this one who considers himself to be a righteous man, and he's talking about this sinner who was in the presence of Jesus and who was crying before him, who was anointing his feet. Which one loves me more? Well, there's one that's clearly on display as loving him. Why did she love him? Because she understood what Jesus was doing for her. She understood she was a sinner. She understood she had no basis whatsoever to come before the Lord, and yet He had accepted her. He had embraced her. It is an interesting story about the woman who comes to anoint Jesus with the bottle of perfume, and Jesus understands what none of the other disciples understand, that she's anointing Him, preparing Him for His burial, for His death. And at that point, the woman understands something the disciples don't understand, for she understands that the reason that she can come to Him It's because He's about to die for her. That's why she's bringing the perfume. It changes her. So which one loves me more? The one who's been forgiven more. What does fasting help you do? It helps you understand how much you are in need of what the Lord has done. James talks about this when he talks about prayer. In James chapter 5, he says, You have not because you ask not. And then he goes on to say, and you, and you pray and you do ask, but you do not receive because you don't ask for the right reasons. You ask for your own pleasures. And therefore, the Lord doesn't answer. You know, we hear these talks about if you pray, you know, whatever you ask in my name, I will give to you. And then we go through all our life asking for things that we don't receive them. And we wonder why. James is explaining why. You're asking for things, but you're not asking them for the sake of the Lord. You're asking them for the sake of your own pleasures. You're asking God to bless you as you walk away from Him. Things don't work that way. The psalmist talks about, delight yourself in the Lord, and I will give you the desires of your heart. When you are aligned with the heart of God, there is no limit to what God will answer when you pray. So what is fasting? Fasting is a tool that helps us to bring our mind and our bodies and our souls in line with remembering what God has done for us so that we become aligned with God. So He's not answering your prayers simply because you humble yourself. He's answering your prayers because you've aligned your life with His. You see the difference? So, prayer is, so fasting is a powerful tool because fasting reminds us of our need for the gospel. 
And as we understand that need for the gospel and how it has been met for us, it moves us to go and seek to be followers of Jesus in seeking relief for the poor around us, for the oppressed around us, for the hungry around us, for the sick, for the naked. It is interesting in that parable when he says, when he says to those, the reason you're coming in is because you did this for me. You fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You visited me when I was in sick or in prison. And they said, when? We don't remember doing this. It, we, we didn't intentionally do it, you see. And the other, vice versa, the ones who didn't do that. When, when did we ever see you? If we'd have known it was you, we would have done it. You see, what they're saying is this was the characterization of the way they lived because they had been touched. They didn't even realize they were living this way because that's what sheep do. So the question this morning is, when you fast, as you pray these 30 days, fast in such a way that helps you realize, realize that you are the one naked, sick, and hungry. So that as you see people naked, sick, or hungry in the course of life, you can look like the God who saved you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you invite us to fast, that we would be remembering of how it is that you have taken care of us, how much you have done for us to transform not us from the outside in our behavior, but from the inside, Lord, which makes us fundamentally different people belonging to you. Lord, help us this 30 days to be faithful in our time of fasting and praying for those around us because you have so touched us. In Jesus' name, amen.